Amen. Father, your presence is here. We sent your spirit. We know you're everywhere all the time. There's nowhere we can go. If we go to the mountains, you're there. If we go to the depths of the valley, you are there. But there's times when you choose to manifest your presence in our midst in a way that grabs our attention. We sense your manifest presence today, Father, and we praise you. We give you our attention and our heart. I pray now as you speak to us through your word, I pray that we will not take them as ideas or words from man, but your encouraging word that's eternal, that's sharper than a double-edged sword, that penetrates the very depth of our being. Breathe on it once again. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 5 in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A few times a year, like most parents, we take our daughter Caden to the doctor for a checkup. We go, and the first thing we do is we go to the waiting room and we do what it says. Wait. We just sit there. Then they call her name, and then uh, you know the drill. You go in, and then you step on the scale, and then they weigh her, and and then they will take that stick and they'll measure how tall she is and they'll record those numbers in a chart and they'll begin to compare them against the last time we visited. And they'll look at her growth over her life and they can see that if she stops growing physically that could indicate there could be a problem in her body. There could be a problem if she's not growing. Paul does the same thing for us in 1 Corinthians. As believers, he gives us some benchmarks of spiritual growth and it can help us indicate and see if we are healthy as a church, healthy as believers, as he challenges the Corinthian church and in turn challenges believers everywhere, as we saw last week, to grow into the deeper things of the Lord. As we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5 through 7 today, as I shared last week as we started this series, if you are here today hoping to get a nice, neat little message that's wrapped up in a bow and you get every little thing you wanted and your ears are tickled, I want to warn you, you're probably going to be disappointed, okay? It's all right, just to let you know, just, oh, oh, I forgot, I forgot, he told me that last week. But if you're here and you want to hear from God's word and have him breathe on it again, hang on, because it could change your life forever. This is a warning, if you don't want your life to change, you need to pull out your phone and play a game, okay? Now, you're going to do that whether I give you permission or not, so I just thought I might as well give you permission to make myself feel better. But no, if you'll direct your heart and your mind to God's word, we'll look in chapter 5 through 7 as Paul talks about moving us as believers from compromise to commitment. His primary focus in these passages is sexual immorality. This sexual immorality is in the church, it's in the believer's life, and he is amazed by it. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 5, here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and excuse me, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. Here is his example. A man has his father's wife. So here's what happened. Paul planted this church, and clearly he established this church according to God's principles. And he said, this is how you are to live, holy and pleasing to God. And this is what your life should look like in all areas, in your sexuality, in every other area that should be pleasing to God. And the reports are coming back that it is less than pleasing to God. He uses this word for sexual immorality, and the word here is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. 
it's kind of one of those umbrella words. And underneath that pornea word, that umbrella word, is, is anything that is sex outside of the context of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. It helps answer a lot of questions. One may say, well, well what about this? Or, or what about this? Or, or what about this? If it's outside of the context of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, God's word says it's sexually immoral. Well, Paul is shocked and he reports that this is taking place inside the church. Then he gives what would be, I, I guess, the most extreme of the examples that had come to him. He gives the example of this man who has a sexual relationship with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. And, and he is shocked. He says, how could this be among you even in the church? How could compromise creep into your life? And here's a few things that Paul talks about that helps us understand where compromise comes from. Now, there's a warning before we get started here in walking through these lists of compromises. It's one thing to point our fingers at Corinth and say that evil, dirty, rotten city. But there's so much in the Corinthian lifestyle that smacks of the American lifestyle. There's so much about the Corinthian church that smells like the church of Christ in America. And so my challenge today is we not just learn what God said to them, but God, what are you saying to us? On the issue of compromise, how do they get there? Well, number one, if you're taking notes, we become complacent. Since Paul was there to this point, things had slid in the church, and it didn't happen all at once. One little compromise led to another. Jim Collins, the business author, wrote an article about business ethics, and he was commenting on the bankruptcy of Enron and WorldCom a number of years ago in an article, and I want to read to you a couple thoughts that he shared. Jim Collins shares, if you told them, these business executives, 10 years ahead of time, hey, let's cook the books and let's all get rich, they would never have gone along with it. But that's rarely how most people get drawn into activities that they later regret. When you're at step A, it feels inconceivable to jump all the way to step Z. If step Z involves something that is a total breach of your values. But if you go from step A to step B to step C to step D, someday you wake up and you find yourself at step Y. And then that leap from Y to Z doesn't seem to be that hard. That's what happened to the Corinthian church and we don't want that to happen in our lives. We find that in the church of Jesus Christ, the percentages are eerily similar to what's happening in the world. We find that we've gone from step A to Z, and these little compromises have taken us there. You find yourself, you wake up one morning, and you recognize that you're staring at a pretty graphic image on the Internet that you never intended to lock eyes with. You wake up, and... You have to count in your head the number of people that you've been intimate with in your life and you never set out in your life to have so many sexual partners. You wake up and you find yourself laying in bed to someone who is not your spouse and you didn't know how this affair would get started. How did it happen? You weren't committed to doing that, but one compromise led to another and you found yourself moving from step A to step B to step C to step D and you wake up and you find yourself at step Y. You think to yourself, well, I, I can watch that movie. It's not going to affect me that much. It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to really impact me. I can mess around a little bit on my date, and I'm not going to cross any major lines. I mean, it's not going to be that big of a deal. 
I can flirt with that person at the office and keep it somewhat innocent. It's just kind of, you know, being polite and doing business. And it's not going to have an impact on my marriage. Step A leads to step B and C and D. And before you know it, we're on our way to the final step Z. That's what Paul says in this next chapter, verse 18 of chapter 6. Look there. Paul says in 18 of chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. And the word he uses for flee here, it's a strong word. It literally reads, if we would translate it literally, run, run, keep on running. And this is not just kind of avoid or kind of go away from. Run, run, and keep on running. Too many times we find ourselves flirting with how close we can get to the line as opposed to fleeing the line of sexual immorality. Another reason that compromise enters into the church or enters into our own life, number two, is we confuse love with approval. You say, well, what do you mean? We think if we really love somebody, then it means that we're going to approve of all of their decisions and their actions. That's what Paul's talking about when he talked about this man who was having a sexual relationship with his mother, stepmother. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, talking about this man in the church, and you are proud. You're proud that he is part of your church fellowship. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Shouldn't this have broken your hearts? And shouldn't you have put out your put this man out of your fellowship who did this? So the church, what was happening here, to be clear, is they felt they were so evolved in their society that they were excited that they the, the common rules didn't apply to them, or they were they were mature enough to handle this type of sin. And and he was not repentant. He was not sorry. This is not of a case of a, of a church body not offering forgiveness. This was a case of the opposite, of condoning each and every sin. Paul says, what about this should you be proud of? That's not loving him. When a Christian is caught in the trap of sin, and they are not repenting, and they are not turning from it, we should not stand by and just pretend it doesn't exist. Heaven forbid we should not stand by and be proud that it's there. We need to say something in love. Love sometimes is tender, but sometimes it needs to be tough. It would just be as if you and I are in a car and we're driving somewhere. And if you find yourself in that situation, I'm sorry, I'm a really slow driver. It's bad. Every place that I've lived, uh, not Fort Wayne yet, I hope this doesn't happen, I've been pulled over by the police, not for speeding, but for driving too slow. It usually happens on a Sunday morning around 5 in the morning or so, and the policeman will pull me over and say, Sir, do you realize you're going 25 and a 40? And I'll say, yeah. He says, well, what's the reason? I'm slow. (laughs) He looks at me to see if I've been drinking or something, and he can quickly see that's not the case. And he says, all right, that poor church's sermon must be really slow. I don't know. (laughs) So if you and I are in a car and we're driving somewhere, and you get over the fact that it's slow, and, and, and you know exactly where we're going, and I'm not sure where we're going, and I pass the turn, and out of love, you don't want to say anything. That's not love. We'll never get there. Uh, Brady, you need to turn around. You missed it. We've got to go the right direction, the right path. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul talked to us last week about the importance of unity in the church. Unity in the body. But unity never comes at the cost of compromising God's standards. When we do that, that's not unity, it's heresy. And Paul is very clear to speak on that. A third reason that we could be led to compromise away from our commitment is We compare ourselves to others. Write that in. We compare ourselves to others. It would have been easy for the church in Corinth to look down the road and make excuses. Because right down the road was the temple of Aphrodite, 
where the pagan worshipers would engage in communal sex and, and group orgies for worship. I mean, how easy would it be able to say is, well, yeah, we don't have everything right in our life in the area of our sexuality, but the church down the road, I mean, they have like group sex for worship. We're not that bad. We're not that perverse. We're not that far. And they compared themselves to others. Paul talks about this in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 12. It's not wise for you to compare yourselves with yourselves. Instead, we compare ourselves only to God's standards. It's this parallel line theory, as if there's two parallel lines. This is parallel, right? Yeah, this is parallel. Perpendicular, parallel. That was for me, reminding myself. We have two parallel lines, and and the bottom line represents the culture or the world, and, and the top parallel line represents the church. And in this parallel line theory, whenever the culture takes a nosedive morally, they begin to stray away morally, the church always stays above the culture, but they follow suit. And they begin to go down as well. And so comparing ourselves to the world can lead us down a dark path. But this is not the way that it should be. And Paul says, don't live that way. We are to keep ourselves aligned with God's standard. And so when the world takes a nosedive, the margin should get greater and greater. But friend, in the church of Jesus Christ in America, it has gotten worse. It's gotten closer and closer and closer to the world. Paul says, there's no depth in that. There's darkness. There's death ahead for that. So chapter 5, Paul identifies the crisis of compromise in the church. And let's move on to chapter 6. He's going to call these believers to a higher level of commitment. In verse 9 through 11 of chapter 6, he reminds them of how they used to think and how they used to act in the area of their sexuality. He says, no more with you. You have been washed. You have been justified. You've been sanctified through Jesus Christ. This is who you are now. You are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Live like it. And in chapter 6, he goes on to compare the way the world thinks about sex and the the culture's reasons for rationalizing sex outside of marriage and in perverse ways. And he compares them with the spiritual reality of our sexuality. So on your notes there, on the left-hand side, you see the culture's reasons and then you see the spiritual reality. Paul's going to address these common excuses. So in verse 12, look at that. He is quoting a common phrase of the city of Corinth. These are the things that they would say. It's just kind of like slogans that they would say. Verse 12, here's what he says. Everything is permissible for me. See, for the people who lived in Corinth, how they determined what was right and wrong, what was moral and immoral, was whether it was legal or illegal, whether it was socially acceptable or not acceptable. As long as it was legal, then it was acceptable for them to participate in. That's not the way it should be, Paul says. For us, our culture is not that much different. We say things in our culture, phrases like, well, as long as it's between two consenting adults, as long as nobody's getting hurt, then it's fine. If everybody's okay with it, then then it's not that big of a deal and we shouldn't worry about it. And Paul says, no, no, the spiritual reality, look at that. He finishes this, everything is permissible for me. Yeah, but the spirituality is not everything is beneficial. So even though it may be legal, even though it may be culturally acceptable, it does not benefit me if it leads me away from God's standards. He also says, everything is permissible, but secondly, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Most of the people that I've met who are enslaved sexually are not those who have 
resisted temptation to live their own way. The people I have met who are enslaved sexually the most are those who give in to their carnal desire at every whim. They are mastered by their own temptation. They have no freedom. Culture's reasoning continues in verse 13. Look at that. Paul gives this second Corinthians saying that it was common. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. In other words, this was an argument saying sex, it's just a natural biological function. It's reducing our sexuality down to that of an animal. And, and this is just the way my body works. Just like my stomach craves food, my body needs a release. And so it's just biology. Don't worry about it so much. Paul says, well, let me give you the spiritual reality. Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The spiritual reality is the purpose of my body is to glorify God. Now, in Corinth, there was a group of teachers called the Gnostics, and they taught that your body and your spirit were separate. And, and so you could do whatever you wanted to with your body. It would not affect your spirit. And, and they were just two very different things. And, and our culture looks at this. Well, what I believe and what I do don't always match up. I can have some ideals, but the way I act are two different things. I mean, back off. It's just biology. It's just my body. Many of us know that that's not true. Many of us have experienced that when you violate God's standards sexually, there's something that comes between you and God. It's hard to pray. You come to church to worship, but your heart is not really in it. It's kind of like just going through the motions. This is because who you are sexually is tied to who you are spiritually. Our spirit and our body are tied together. And God calls us to be something that glorifies Him. Another cultural reason, even this third one, could basically be summed up like this. It's my body and I can do with it whatever I want to. Don't tell me what I have to do with my body. Verse 19, he addresses this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And here is the spiritual reality right here. Check this out. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It was a few years ago, I was talking to this guy uh, after church, and we were there at church, and he'd only been a Christian for a few months, and as he was talking to me, it slipped out and he took the Lord's name in vain. And as soon as he said the Lord's name in vain, uh, his face got red and he tried to backpedal a little bit, and, uh, and he said, Pastor, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I forgot we were in church. And, and so I tried to encourage him, and I didn't want him to feel like I was judging him, but in the back of my mind I thought, you forgot we were in church? And what's that have to do with it? I mean, just because we're in this building, this is a place that's set apart for worship, but this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just what happens in here, it's what happens out there. Wherever we go, God goes with us. The Holy Spirit goes with us. When you order that movie, God is there. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you go to your girlfriend's house and their parents aren't there, her parents aren't there, and you think you're alone, her parents may not be there, but Jesus is there. He's with you. It's not our own body. It's been bought with a price. Now, before we move on, there's a temptation at this point for guilt to overwhelm to the point of despair. I want you to hang on and listen that God is offering redemption. He wants to free you from the chains. The enemy's lie says you are stuck in bondage to the sinful, sinful desire. 
You're stuck in bondage to this pornography. You're stuck in bondage to this affair. You are stuck in bondage to these lusts. You are stuck in bondage to your craving of filling your emotional tank from places that it has no business being filled. Jesus says, I want you to be free. The enemy, the liar, wants to keep you in chains. So when you feel condemnation today, and you feel shame today, that's not from God. But God is calling you out. He loves you enough to be tough with you and not just tender and say, repent, turn from it. This is not okay. You're going the wrong direction. Well, Paul continues on on this subject in chapter 7. He's going to speak about sex specifically in the context of marriage. I had a couple of, I had one person talk to me after first service and say, Pastor Brady, you were tied to your notes a little bit extra today. I said, I just didn't want to look anybody in the eyes when I talk about sex. I think that's what it is. No. There's a lot of good stuff here, and I just want to get this right and and get it. But sometimes we're embarrassed or we're shy to talk about the issue of sex in church. I don't know why. God is very clear on this subject. It's a gift from God, and Paul talks about it. And so today, we're going to follow Paul's examples. In chapter 7, he's answering questions. It's like a question and answer time. Chapter 7, verse 1, look at what Paul says. Now, for the matters you wrote about. Apparently, the church in Corinth sent Paul a letter asking him some specific questions about the issue of sexuality, specifically in the context of marriage. So Paul is going to address these questions, and we have the answers, but we don't have the questions. It's kind of like Jeopardy. We know what the answers are, but we don't have the other end of the phone conversation. And so by careful study and context, we can begin to put together what the question was asked. As I've studied this and looked at the book of Song of Solomon, it's, it's a beautiful book that speaks about directly the intimate relationship between a husband and wife. And one of the things I noticed that the Corinthian church began to ask in this category, it's very common to what people ask today. The questions have not changed that much. And here's the first one, apparently, that comes to Paul. I think the question is like this. Is it better just to have nothing to do with sex then? Just write the whole thing off. It's evil and wrong and dirty and nasty. Chapter 7, verse 1, here's what Paul says. Now, for this matter you wrote about. Now, I want you to notice the punctuation there. Do you see that punctuation? It's a colon. Hang on to that. That's important. Now, for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry. Literally, translated, would read, it is good for a man not to have sexual contact with a woman. Now, if we would just stop right there, and is this really what Paul meant? If we would stop there and say this is it, I think next week in, in church it would look a lot more like a Beth Moore conference. I think we'd lose all the guys. What could Paul possibly be saying to us? Have no contact with a woman? What, what is Paul saying? Now notice, we see this punctuation. We see that Paul is simply restating the conclusion that was asked of him by the people. They were the ones saying this. They were saying, hey... The best thing for us is just to write sex off altogether. It's evil. It's wrong. And Paul in verse 8, look at that. He describes it as a gift from God. It's something that God has given. So what's happening here? The people who were brought up in such a pagan and dirty and nasty world, they could not visualize sex glorifying God in any way. The only thing they could identify sex with was godless, perverse actions. And so when Paul talked about this being a gift from God, it's no wonder they couldn't put two and two together. So asking the question, is it better just to have nothing to do with sex? Paul says, it is a gift from God in the context of marriage. I think it's a challenge for many people today. 
They have possibly grown up in a home where sex was not talked about. Even it may feel uncomfortable and, and inappropriate to talk about sex, and you can't wait for me to be done talking right now. I can see on some of your faces. It's okay. It's okay. I checked in the manual with the generals. We can talk about this. It's in the Bible. Some of us have grown up with this idea, like the Corinthian church, that there's nothing good that can come from this so-called gift from God. But that's not what God says. In Genesis, we find Adam and Eve, and we're told that they stood naked before one another, and they were not ashamed. They were not embarrassed. Song of Solomon, when you read through this book, now here's something just to keep in mind. Chapter 4 of Song of Solomon is pretty amazing stuff. It just depicts an intimate relationship between a husband and wife and walks through that love-making so, in this description of lovemaking, if you ever get bored in church and the sermon is not entertaining you, just turn to Song of Solomon chapter 4 and start reading. Now, don't do it now. It'll be too obvious. Now, now if you try this, you may just yell out amen in an inappropriate place, but at least you're awake. It's okay. You'll be double-taking. You'll be looking at it and say, is this, is this in the Bible? Is this, is, is this a misprint? God has given the gift of sex as a tremendous blessing in the context of marriage. This was God's idea. The second question that Paul seems to address in chapter 7 is, is it really my job to satisfy my spouse sexually? Even in the nature or the way this question is worded, it, it, it reveals some of the problem, right? What, what's the word here? Is it my chore? Is it my responsibility to satisfy my spouse? It's almost as if the person asking the question is saying, really? Is it my chore? Wash the dishes. Check. Fold the laundry. Check. Be intimate with my husband. Check. I did all the responsibilities and chores that I'm supposed to do this week. But Paul speaks very clearly about this in verse 3 and 4. Look at this. He doesn't talk about sexual technique. He talks about our attitude, what we think about sex, because that's what's the most important. In verse 3 and 4 it says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, this would have been a revolutionary idea here. Don't miss this. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. In that culture, women didn't have ownership of anything. But Paul is saying, you have ownership of each other. You are not your own. The message paraphrase puts it this way. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. A husband seeking to satisfy his wife and a wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Now, we've got to note, this is the absolute opposite of what we are indoctrinated with outside these walls in the world. Everything we are taught about sex is that it is selfish. It is for what I want, when I want it, how I want it, now. God says that is not right. God has called us to embrace his gift in the context of marriage. See, if we don't receive joy from bringing pleasure to a husband and, our, and a wife in that relationship, we miss God's gift. If it's hard for you to see it that way, maybe, maybe it's because there's some hang-ups sexually for you. Maybe you have been wounded or hurt or abused in some way. My heart breaks for you. But know that God wants to bring healing and redemption in your heart, and He wants to give this gift back to your marriage. Possibly, 
you have been involved sexually outside of your marriage at one time or another. And so when you think of sex, you remember when it used to be all about beauty or it used to all be about guilt or it used to be all about selfishness. Maybe the sin of pornography has crept into your mind and your soul and it has begun to ruin the intimacy with your spouse. Maybe you've watched one too many episodes of Desperate Housewives and you're buying into this idea that it's all about you getting your needs met when you want it. Paul says, no. Now, husbands, note, who is called to serve first? Husbands, satisfy your wife. Quit whining about what you don't have or get or want, and you start serving your wife. Well, why is it that husbands and wives don't don't do this? Well, one, we talked about selfishness. I think another reason is that a lot of Christian marriages don't take this seriously. For one reason or another, they don't see that intimacy in a Christian marriage is very important. Let me be real clear. Men, if you would have the same passion for the love for your wife and your love life that you do for work, it would change things in the bedroom. Husbands, if you gave the same attention to your wife, listening to her and paying attention to her as you will the football game that may come on later today, things would possibly change in the bedroom. Wives, if you would have as much creativity in the bedroom as you do in decorating the bedroom, it may help. Wives, if you would give the same encouragement to your husband that you would give to your girlfriends, it may help. Do you not underestimate what God is doing? He's giving a gift of intimacy between a man and a wife. Another reason that husbands and wives don't seek to sexually satisfy one another is, is communication. And I want to be frank and clear because Paul is frank and clear. Sex It's so interesting. It's talked about so much in our media culture, but it is so very little spoken of in our marriages. We need to be open and honest with our husband and our wife and talk to each other. In the book of Song of Solomon, the woman here speaks verbally. And she shares her heart and she shares what she enjoys. And she tells her lover what it is she desires. Women... There are few men that do not want to hear and listen to what it is your heart cry is at moments of intimacy. We need to communicate with one another. Now, wives, your husband will never say this to you, so I'll say it for you. Speaking for husbands, I'll ask for forgiveness later for some who may talk to me. We have no idea what we're doing. We need your help. Talk to us. Let us know what makes you feel safe and secure, what makes you feel loved. Let us know what makes you feel like you are a Proverbs 31 woman. Talk to us. Help us love you better. We're not good at asking directions. We're even worse at asking how to love you better. In verse 4, Paul addresses another reason why it's so selfish in this relationship between husbands and wives. And it's this thought that our body is our own. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. Now, when we hear this language, we get defensive. Who are you, pastor, to stand up here and tell me that that my body is not my own? And my husband has some say over that. When you got married and you entered into a marriage covenant, you said, everything that's mine is yours and everything that yours is mine. I lay down my life for you. My body is yours and yours is mine. This no longer is something that I keep for myself. 
Now, quite frankly, to be honest, I don't know that I've ever heard a man come up to me and, and complain about this fact. I've never had a man come up to me with disgust and say, she only wants me for my body. <laughs> I guess that's possible, and if that's you, I'm not belittling your, your plight. But for most of us men, that doesn't even register on our radar, maybe uh, our hopes or something. But women, I want you to see how this can be applicable to you as well. If, if your husband's body is not your, his own, it's yours as well, it would lead me to believe that you could go to him and say, Honey, you know, your body, which is, is our body, and, and so in my body, I prefer that we have two distinct eyebrows, not one unibrow. It just makes me feel better about our body if, if you would take care of this spot right here. But we get defensive and we say, well, who are you to talk to me about my body? Who are you to talk? But when we have a loving relationship one to another, we understand that who I am, everything I am and everything I'm not, it's yours and vice versa. Paul clearly talks about it. Lastly, the question here that we see in verse 5 is the question of how often should a Christian couple be intimate? How often should they make love? I hate to do this, but we're out of time today, and so uh, <laughs> we never get out late, so no, I'm kidding. Actually, I did a little research on a lot of Christian marriage websites, and, and one of the number one questions asked is, what is normal in the area of frequency of intimacy between a husband and wife? Well, what is the right amount? Does God say anything about this? Look at verse 5. Paul talks about it. Do not deprive each other except, this is an important phrase, by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then Paul writes, then come together again so that Satan will not, attempt, will not tempt you beyond your lack of control. There needs to be some mutual consent for a short period of time so Satan won't tempt you. Again, he's coming back. The things that cause us to compromise in our sexual area of our life and our sexual being causes us to compromise in our relationship with God. And so when we don't take care of our intimacy in our marriage, we're not taking care of our relationship with God. We don't take care of our purity outside of marriage. We don't take care of somebody else's purity outside of marriage. We're not taking care of our relationship with God. And Paul says this is very, very important. Now, because this is an issue, not always, but mostly an issue that men are often concerned about with frequency, not always the men, but often, let me uh, enlist some of the teachings and wisdom from a, a woman who has had great teaching on this. Sarah Emerson is an author and teacher who wrote the book Love and Respect, and let me, hear, let me share some of her words, and I quote, Paul says, each is to fulfill their duty to the other. Husbands, particularly, can come underneath great temptation and attack from the enemy when deprived from sexual release. She writes, Wives might be better to understand this as if they were to think about how they would feel if their husband would only listen to them or talk to them once a month or once a year. Being deprived of emotional release would drive most women crazy, she writes. Then Sarah talks about a time when she was teaching and, and through this material at a conference she was teaching and a young woman came to her after the conference and she said, I've got to talk to you. This young woman was married and had kids and she said, I have to tell you what happened last Sunday. I called my mom Sunday afternoon and I told her, Mom, this Sunday our family's not going to be able to come over. See, their usual pattern was to go over to their parents' house for Sunday afternoon. Her mom, who was in her late 60s, said to her adult married daughter, well, 
why can't you come over? What's going on? And her daughter said, well, if you really have to know, my husband is walking around feeling sorry for himself because we haven't had a chance to be intimate in over two weeks. She says her mom didn't hesitate but scolded her. And here's what her mom said. This mother in her late 60s said, honey, you should be ashamed of yourself. Why would you deprive him of something that makes him so happy and takes such a small amount of your time? And the daughter said, Mom, I can't believe you said that. And then she thought to herself, you know what? My mom has been married for 47 years. She has the best marriage that I know, and there could be some wisdom in that for me, she said. See, this issue of frequency can cause a lot of tension in a marriage, so Paul addresses it. In some ways, in the previous question, that if we are selflessly giving to one another, it helps address that question. But I think the heart of this in our culture is, well, what's normal? How often? And so Paul doesn't give a number because there's different seasons of life and there's different individuals that would have different preferences and needs and and all those things. But he does give some great principles. The first is the principle of mutuality. The principle of mutuality says this, don't deprive one another. You do not have the right to deny sex, and you do not have the right to demand sex. It's something you come to agreement together as a husband and wife. Sometimes this frequency problem is more than just when, but it's also one of the issues that we have, men. Often when a man, a husband, is denied intimacy with his wife for whatever reason, that she just does not feel that way or doesn't feel like that, men, our issue, sometimes we take this as an assault on who we are as a man. And so wives, help your husband and encourage him and know that you support and love him. Men, when we have the tone of constantly nagging and being the martyr that we don't have whatever it is that we want or that we need, we begin to cause our wives to feel like something's wrong with them. What have they done wrong? And, and we take what God has intended to bring us together and it is driving us apart. It becomes a source of tension and arguments and fights when God says, lay down your life, lay down your desires and minister and serve your spouse. The second and final principle here is the principle of need. He warns that you should not stay apart for too long of a time or Satan will bring unnecessary temptation. Bob Russell puts it this way. If you are not sharing love, and I want to note that there's a number of ways to share love, but he says if you are not sharing love in your marriage, you are sending a starving person out into a world which is a food court with luscious aromas beckoning and many shops offering free samples. The temptation level goes up and the commitment level in the marriage goes down. Now hear me, this is not an excuse for anyone to move into sin, but love your spouse and help them stay true to you and true to God. As we come to the end of Paul's teaching on this, some of you say, oh, goodness, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) Paul is teaching us that to love in our sexuality is to put the other person first. So if I'm not married, I'm not going to have my selfish desires met at the expense of you and your future spouse. If I am married, I'm not going to have my selfish needs met at your expense or the expense of my family or others and all the ripple effects that happen. See, Paul is teaching us that in our relationships with husband and wife and with men and women in general, it's to be the same way with the Lord. And we love the Lord the way He loved us selflessly. God is calling us to grow up and grow deeper in our relationship with God, with our husband and wife, and men and women in general. 
as we close this morning, I'm going to invite Pastor Edgar to come up. And in a moment, we're going to partake of communion together. And uh, you say, well, that's kind of an odd ending to this sermon that piqued my interest but kept me embarrassed the entire time. See, I believe the takeaway for us is that there's some in this room that no doubt, statistically, it would be true that there are some in this room who have issues of lust that are unconfessed. And if the Holy Spirit is putting his thumb in your back on an issue of lust or unfaithfulness or, or sexual immorality of any kind... And let me help you. Go back, rewind a minute. Well, what about this or what about that? Hey, if it's any aspect of sexuality outside the context of a loving, God-fearing marriage relationship between husband and wife, it's sexually impure. Pornography, emotionally filling your tank from someone who is not your spouse in intimate ways, crossing lines and dating, experimenting. God says, don't. It's going to hurt. And, and for us to partake in the greatest symbol of the sacrifice he's given for us, we need to make our hearts pure and right before him. So in just a second, I'm going to pray and I want to invite you to search your heart with me and say, God, my desire is not to beat myself up with shame and condemnation, but I don't want to ignore the fact that I have been willfully disobedient. I've allowed my eyes to engage with images and things that it should not be engaged with. I've allowed my heart to attach and mingle with people in places that it should not attach. And God, I know it's sin and that separates me from you. And I want to be free from this. The enemy makes me feel like following you is such this fuddy-duddy, closed-up, backwards way of living. But yet, that is a lie. You are in chains when you serve every sinful desire. It wants to free you today. If that's your heart, I want you to pray with me. Well, Pastor Brady, I, God hasn't shown me anything. What am I supposed to do? I want you to thank God for the freedom he's already given you. But let's pray right now. Father, I thank you for the conviction you've given us today from your word that there is a standard we are called to. I pray that you will give each man and woman here the boldness to confess to you the areas of sin that you have highlighted in their life. Father, we know that there's things that we have said and done wrong. And we know that they are sin and they separate us from you. And God, we're sick to our stomach. We're nauseous about this habitual over and over fall. Would you show us that there is victory in you in purity? Father, would you take the conviction of us not loving our spouse as selflessly as you had called us to. We may not have stepped out on our marriage, but we are denying intimacy to the one that we have promised our life to. Father, I pray that every man in this room who is married would stand up and quit whining and start out loving their wife. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness that you have given right here and now on this day. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.